0: In 1996, I, I was a total loser, <laughs> I mean a big loser, and if you would have hung out with me with, for five minutes, you would have walked away going, man, that guy's a loser. Um, I was a sophomore in college, I was on the track to become a surgeon, um, bound for medical school, I was a shoe in for medical school, um, but the deal was I didn't want to be a surgeon because I like people, because I didn't. I didn't want to be a surgeon because I actually cared for people, because I didn't. I didn't care about anyone else. I mean, it wasn't for any altruistic reason at all that I, want, that I wanted to be a doctor. Um, I wanted it for reasons of money, security. I like the power, the recognition that comes with it, you know, the prestige where it puts me on the echelon of social status. Um, did I say money yet? I wanted the money. I wanted to win. Does that make sense? Some of you guys are out there like, yeah, that totally makes sense. I wanted to win. That's what makes me a loser though, right? I'm wanting to be a doctor for the wrong reasons. Y'all are like, I'm so glad he didn't go to medical school. He could have been my doctor. doesn't even care about me. Um, in 1997, the very next year, God rescued me. That's when I became a Christian. I don't know the exact day and time it happened, but I know it happened in the fall of 97. And, and God did something very beautiful when He rescued me. He changed my heart. We see in Isaiah where He talks about taking out a heart of stone and replacing it with a heart of flesh. And that's literally what happened to me. I started to care and I started to love. Um, and yeah, that was pointed vertically. God I loved, but it also, I found, started to eke out horizontally. People people I started to love. Now that's new. And the thing was, is my heart was most broken for the people that were closest around me, the ones I cared least about, which were college students. I was one. I was surrounded by them, but I didn't care about them. But now I did. God broke my heart for the university, for the college campus. I wanted to reach the college campus. I didn't know how to do it, but I just love the idea of changing and impacting that Part of society. Um, it's all I talked about. It's all I thought about. It's all I put myself around. If there was a book on it, I read it. If there was a conference, I went to it. If there was an opportunity, I jumped into it. I was all about reaching the college campus. It even started to eke itself into my prayer. I even started to have little bits of my prayer pointing to the college campus. And then, and then it started to overwhelm me to where most of my prayer was dealing with, yeah, the college campus. That's all I cared about. But I also found out in that whole time that God was ruining me for anything else. He was ruining me straight up. That year was a very, very difficult year of prayer and fight for me because I did feel like God was calling me out of medical school, calling me away from being a doctor to being a campus pastor. Okay, now that was a tough, that was a tough 9, 10, 11 months because I was so scared of making the wrong decision. I could choose to be a campus minister, but if I was wrong, I was throwing away something that is very difficult to get to. Or, I could step into medical school, but then I could be throwing away something very precious as well, as God's call. I mean, what am I supposed to do? I don't even know how to reach a college campus. I don't even know what that's supposed to look like. I don't have any strategy in place. I I, I I literally went a whole year and a half as a Christian, without even knowing that there was such a thing as campus ministry. I went to a small school, there, even, there wasn't one, right? I knew I'd be opposed, I knew there'd be opposition, my parents opposed it, um, my classmates opposed it, they even mocked me, you know, my professors opposed me and mocked me. Um, I knew there'd be attack, I knew it'd be difficult, I was struggling. It's fighting, praying, praying, just wrestling, kicking it back and forth, venting on God, crying out to God. And yet God continued to ruin me. 1998 rolled around. I decided to go ahead and leave the track of being a surgeon. I finished with a degree. I did well, but I did go ahead and go into campus ministry. Knowing that I was giving up a lucrative career to go and ask people for money, See, we live on support. So we developed a partnership team of people that would support us financially that I could actually work on the college campus full-time. Most of those people are still on our partnership team, by the way. They helped a lot of this church plant even become a reality financially. They're very excited about it. Now, when I'm sitting down with them and I'm talking to them about the college campus and I'm wanting them to invest their lives, their prayer, their family, their finances, their faith, I want them to be a part of it, I kept catching them saying, Luke, you've got a plan. You've got it all worked out, don't you? Well, that was different than where I was a year earlier. And I did have a plan. I knew exactly where we were going. I had a campus. I had a people. My heart was broken for him. I knew when we were going to be there. I knew how much it was going to cost. I knew when the different steps would be that we would need to be uh, on different parts of the campus. I knew, I knew every. if you asked me any question, I would have had an answer for you. Now, that's not because I'm some great guy. It's because God broke my heart for a people and out of a year's worth of prayer and battling and grueling back and forth and back and forth, a strategy came forth. A plan came forth and I was able to act. And so I think we did okay. I don't have any regrets. I'm actually glad to be here. You know. Um, But what do we do with our hearts? What do you do when God rips them open for a people? What do you do What do you do when he guts you for a specific cause or city or people group or even one person? And you can't get the thought of them or him or that cause out of your brain. It just rattles around up there. It's just stuck to you. You find yourself being ruined as well. What do you do? What do you do when you see hard work before you? But you have no idea how to go forward. Any of y'all ever been there where you just feel like, gosh, I wish I could just get my hands on that and do something. There's such need there, but I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I just don't know what to do. And you just kind of stall out. It just kind of stops for you there. You know, last week we started the book of Nehemiah. And we are going to go through the whole book. And we saw how Nehemiah's heart was broken for a city, a people, a cause, I guess you could say. In Jerusalem, right? The, the city of Shalom, the city of peace. Jerusalem had been laying in ruins for 141 years. Just a pile of rubble. It was crushed by the Babylonians. We saw how God gave Nehemiah the heart of Jesus. Because Nehemiah now had a heart for people that were exiled, and dispersed, and broken down. Jesus Christ has a heart for people who are broken down, dispersed, and exiled as well. He was actually, when you think about it, I found this in the Bible this week, he was an answer to prophecy even. We don't catch this very often when we read through Nehemiah, but look at, don't, don't turn in your Bible, keep your finger in Nehemiah, but we're going to put Jeremiah 15, 5. Did that work out okay? We have it? okay. This is a prophecy by Jeremiah, who's been considered the weeping prophet. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Or who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside and ask about your welfare? Well, Nehemiah did. We saw that last week. He asked about their welfare. His heart was broken. He got news, but it wasn't really news, was it? It was common knowledge. 141 years the bricks had been pushed down. Everything was in ruins. But yeah, now his heart's broken. That's because the heart of Christ had been given to him. This is where we pick up our story today, okay? Now, I do want to remind you, Nehemiah, as a story, is about being broken, going, and then spending your life for God's glory, His people, and His mission. That's what this book is ultimately about, okay? Yes, it's about a man going to Jerusalem to build some walls, but this is what it's truly about, okay? It's about building a city of living stones, which is what we're called, the church. That we would look so much like Jesus Christ that when the nations that surround us look on, they would see something different. They would see the remedy that is Jesus Christ to the moral cancer, to the cosmic cancer that we all have. That's what this book is about. Last week we saw how he responded to the news. This week I want to look at what he does with the news. What he does with it, okay? You know, well I'm just going to go ahead and jump in I'm not going to waste time with that look at um, chapter 1 verse 11 we're going to look at the last half of that One eleven b that's where we're going to start that actually belongs in chapter 2 I don't know who split that up whatever four or 500 years ago but they messed it up there it says this now I was a cupbearer to the king in the month of Nisan did y'all know that's where the Japanese got that word for their car? did y'all know that? That's not true. I'm messing around. But you see how I delivered it? I did it like y'all would have really believed it. Y'all would have walked and told your friends, guess what? In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Okay, I'll stop there. The role of a cupbearer. Now I was a cupbearer to the king, he says. This is a really cool position. This is an interesting role in the king's household. People would try to kill kings. They're still doing it today, I mean, but people would always do it in a very common way to assassinate a king is through the food or wine. It's very easy to mask a poison whenever you're mixing it with a food or mixing it with a wine. So what these kings would do is they would collect trustworthy people around them. They would take dominion over the food, not just taste it before they do. that's, That's a basic role, but actually have dominion of where it comes from. Who's resourcing it? What wine goes with what? I mean, almost like a chef, but not quite but almost like the Secret Service, but not quite, you know? It's like Secret Service, like Jack Bauer without the fist to the throat. Jack Bauer that knows what wine goes with what food. I mean, this was was a serious position of trusted value to the king. Now, the upside is, to this job, is the food's really good. The food's really good. You're eating the best food in the world, right? With the king. It's pretty cool. The downside is, is you die. That's a pretty serious downside. I look at that, I was putting this together this week and I thought, downside, upside, downside, I don't know, that food's looking pretty good. How often do they die? They don't always die, you know. That food's got to be really good. This is a special place of power, heavy, heavy influence. There might have been, most certainly there probably were, positions that were higher than the cupbearer because this is a slave's position, right? But this is one of direct and heavy influence because he's with the king all day long, right? There's political offices that are higher in rank above the president's wife, any president. But don't you know that she has a weighty and heavy voice? This is a a similar situation, okay? He has direct input because he's walking with this guy all the time. He's always at the king's side. Luke, how do you know that? Because he's a king. He's always going to eat. If I was king, I'd be eating all the time too. I'd always have a cup bear right next to me. I mean, think about it. Middle of the night, you wake up, you want ice cream? You're the king, you're getting ice cream. You wake up in the middle of the night, you want nachos? You get nachos. But guess who's got to put it together and eat it before you do? Cup bear, Because you don't want poison in your food. Even your munchies. You don't want poison in your munchies. So he's always at the king's side. And because of that, he needed to be good looking. Handsome, cultured educated could speak multiple languages knew which wine did go with which food knew which foods went together well this is a serious position right usually even carried the signet ring with him cupbearers historically especially in persia carried the signet ring that's a ring that would be used to seal documents saying this is an order executed by the king this is the directive given by the king follow it like a signature okay now what i what I like is what he was not. What Nehemiah was not was a professional theologian. He wasn't one. He didn't go to seminary. He's just an average guy. working at, Now, it's a good job, right? It's a pretty decent job, but it's a secular one. I like this. I like the fact that God would give us a book where Nehemiah is the average Joe. Okay. Many of you have lives where you move together, move forward, day by day by day by day, and nothing new happens, it feels like. It's like a new stanza and the same song that you've been listening to yesterday and the day before and the day before, and it just keeps going on and on, and you find yourself being reduced to, how fast can you pick up your paycheck and can I beat the traffic? And it's just this normal, normal, normal thing. And you want to do something big and significant But you can't even find out how to do that. And then the the normal of your life kind of pins you down and starts to smother you out. And you stop thinking in things like big and significant, right? This was Nehemiah's life. This was his life. Normal, rhythmic, constant, it's the same thing. And then whammo, then God ruined him. God ruined him. He gave him the heart of Jesus. Totally changed everything. I don't, know who quoted, I don't know whose quote this belongs to. It's not mine. It's not original with me. But some guy said, "...the great doors of history many times will swing on small hinges." I love this. I mean, this is really, this is really appropriate for you and me, right? Now, he'd been praying for three to four months by this point. We know that because of the month of Nisan and how it's spaced from the original month. It was in verse 1 of, of chapter 1. He petitioned God for over three months... He wrestled with this. That's long-suffering prayer before he even made a move. Everything you're going to see that happens today, well-bathed in prayer. Soaked, you can say, in prayer. And he had a sad face about him. That's kind of significant. It's significant because if you had a sad face and you were in the presence of the king, you could die. They'll kill you for that. These are Persian kings, right? It's not like the storybooks. These Persians, they were seen as demigods, God-like figures, and if you came in with a sad face, that was interpreted as displeasure towards you as their God, as their God-King, and they'll put you down for that. So you couldn't, even be a, you couldn't even have a sad face. I mean, most of you guys can go to work and be grumpy for weeks before someone says something, right? And you might not even ever hear anything. But at this place, could you imagine? Could you imagine going to work every day, every day, having to be chipper, encouraging, genuine, smile on your face, Have the quippy jokes. And it's not if you fail at that, you lose your job. It's if you fail at that, you die. That's some pressure. That's some pressure. It's hard to hide the heart of Jesus, though. I mean, I don't know how Nehemiah did it as long as he did, but eventually he couldn't hide it anymore. It just started to show. Woody Allen, what does he say? The human heart wants what the human heart wants. And he just wanted to be with and reconstructing the walls and the people of Jerusalem. And he just couldn't hide it anymore. Now, okay, so I'm going to go on. Look at verse 4. It says this. Then, Oh, I'm sorry. I outran you. Are you ready? Okay. Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, with the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. We're about to find out how long he told him. (laughs) And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I should occupy. Now, listen. There's something really cool in here. The king says, what are you requesting? And then it says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king. That's a very fast prayer. Everyone in the room is staring at him. The king says, what do you want? He didn't drop on the floor and start dumping his guts out and praying and weeping and gnashing his teeth. That was a very fast prayer. But it it was parlayed against months of work he'd already done in prayer with God. There are long prayers, and then there are quick prayers. Theologians say this is one of the finest examples we have in the whole, the whole Bible of what they call an arrow prayer, what we call a quick bullet prayer. This is it, right here. He did it really fast. And it probably sounded something like, oh my gosh, God, here we go. Help me. Oh, I need your grace. You know, he wasn't a seminarian. He's just a normal guy. What would you sound like? That's what he sounded like. That's what happened. Here, Nehemiah, This is cool. He's talking to both kings at the same time. Two kings at the same time. Not too many people in human history have done this. He's talking to a man sitting on a human throne, and then he immediately switches gears and talks to the throne of grace, God's throne. But he didn't get confused. He didn't get confused as far as, I'm 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 a resident in heaven. I'm just a citizen here. I mean, yeah, you're the king I'm talking to, but the real power lay with my king. He's talking to two kings, but he's not misunderstanding from one, for one moment where the power is really, really coming from. This is important for us. I mean, think about it. Contrast the throne of Artaxerxes, the king, and the throne of grace. Nehemiah had to wait for Artaxerxes, the king of earth, to ask him, hey, what's going on in your heart? I see that something's wrong. Why don't you tell me what's going on? It's obviously, you're burdened. But our, our King, on the throne of grace, we don't have to wait before we talk to Him. We can go boldly and confidently straight to the throne of grace and be very open with all of our burdens. It says this in Hebrews 4.16. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, Artaxerxes, he also saw sorrow on Nehemiah's face. But our king, not only does he see sorrow on your face, sees it in your heart, he actually lives it with you. He feels it. See, we have this weird conception that God sees our sadness and he just makes a mental note. Someone's sad. This person's sad. You know. He actually feels the sadness with you. Have you, have you ever thought of God in that way? And he's able to empathize with you. He's able to engage emotionally what you're gauging emotionally. It's a different throne altogether. You know, people approaching the thrones of Persia, the kings, you had to be really careful with what you said. You better put a filter on it. You better put a filter on it because if they don't like what they hear, if you burden them too much, they might kill you. But our king, you don't have to have a filter on you can, you can unveil all of your burdens. And he actually knows what they are before you even pray them. That's the beauty. What a different throne we serve, man. That's amazing. So, what is going on here? Why does that matter for us? In this little part right here. Because in his prayer to God, he's showing himself to be very powerless, right? He's very powerless. He's before a very powerful man that's going to have his way. And he's basically, in a prostrate way, saying, God, I don't know what to do. You're going to have to do everything. What can we learn from this? I will tell you something my pastor told me years and years and years ago. And it's stuck in my head. And I've had to recall this lesson over and over and over and over again. Probably one of the most powerful lessons he's taught me and all the time I've been with him. He said, Luke, you are never, ever at the mercy of man. Never. You're never at the mercy of a situation. You're never at the mercy of a moment. You're never a victim of all those things. You're at the mercy of God's powerful right hands. And if he wants it to happen, it's going to happen. If he wants to change the rails, it's going to change. But that's the God you serve. Well, I've really needed that over the years. Cuz doesn't it? I mean, cuz it feels like that's not the case, right? Doesn't it feel like sometimes you are at the mercy of a man? You are at the mercy of a situation. Oh my gosh, if this thing doesn't go through, I'm in trouble. If this person doesn't pick up the phone, I'm sunk. If this car doesn't start, I'm in trouble. We all have situations where we think, I am totally at the utter mercy of what's going on right now. You're never at the mercy of man. It's an important lesson because what we can do is we can look at this and we can say, Hey, man, this king is doing some really cool things for Nehemiah. This king, his power, his benevolence, his generosity is really big in Nehemiah's life right now. I mean, good thing for Nehemiah that this king is around. That's actually the wrong way to look at this. It's good for Nehemiah that God was around. It's good for Nehemiah that God had his way, that God was benevolent, that God was the one that was generous, that God is the one that is powerful. He is the one. He's just working through Artaxerxes. Right? That's the throne we need to look for. You don't need a throne of a king, you need the throne of God. That's what that says. Now, why is this important? Because he's about to ask for something totally ridiculous. I mean, when you go through this request, historically what it means, you see how ridiculous, how totally ridiculous it is what he's about to ask for. He's asking for a 12 year break. That's how long he was gone. And we know that he told the king how long because it says it in the text. 12 years. The king said, How long are you gonna be gone? And the Nehemiah says, After I told him. It was given to him as an answer, even in that. Twelve years. We find out later on in the story he was gone before he went back. Twelve years of a trusted position. I mean, there's not a deep roster on cut bears. They don't grow on trees. A lot of investment, heavy investment goes into this. I mean some of you, you have a hard time getting two days off in a row. You know what I'm saying? Even if it's due you, even if it's like vacation time, can you imagine? Could you imagine being a crucial employee in a company and going to the CEO and asking for a 12-year break to go do your own little pet project that doesn't even matter to the company? What do you think he would tell you? He'd say, don't come back. Firm. go do it. Don't come back. Not only that, he was asking the king to pay for it. He was asking the king to underwrite all the costs of the city construction. That's amazing. I mean, the wood that was going to come from the private forest of this king was going to be astronomical. The cost on it was astronomical. We find out later on that he paid for all of the construction costs. This is a pagan king. Now, this is why this is noteworthy, right? He is considered a god, Artaxerxes, a demigod. He is actually paying the costs to build the city walls of a city that worships a king and a god that rejects him. That's amazing. This is this is a city, the Jerusalem, the city of peace, the city of shalom, worships the God of heaven that sets himself up against anyone, anything that calls itself God, that calls himself God, like Artaxerxes. And yet this guy's going to pay for the construction of this city. That's ridiculous. Not only that, King, I want a house. Build me a house. Make it a big one because I like to host people. You know. Buy me a house while you're at it. We find out that he actually not only let him go for 12 years, he paid for all of his costs too. Not just the cost of the city. He paid him a healthy salary the whole time he was gone for that 12 years. See how ridiculous this is? Probably even more ridiculous than that. A slave was asking a king to reverse current foreign policy. There was a foreign policy that that city would never be built. And guess who said it? this king." This is what happened. You see, this isn't the first time that these walls were attempted. Um, This isn't the first time that a group came to try to build the walls. This had actually happened under Ezra. You could find this in the book of Ezra in chapter 4. They'd actually started to build the walls. You've got some people, some Samaritans and some different people, um, Gentile nations around them that hated the Jews, did not want Jerusalem to become a power, so they wrote this nasty letter to the king. Right? This is what it says. In Ezra 4.11, don't turn there, it's going to be on the screen. It says this, To Artaxerxes the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now, be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, Be it known to the king that if the city is rebuilt and the walls refinished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired." That's pretty... Okay. So that's obviously not true. So they sent a letter, a slanderous letter. Now this is what the king's response was. Make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that the city be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? So this king said, it's not going to happen. Foreign policy. Jerusalem is not going to be a city. The walls will not go up. So now you have a slave coming many, many years later talking to the same king saying, oh yeah, by the way can you change the legislation so that I can pull this off? Can you pass new laws? Now at at best this was going to embarrass him and make him look silly. At worst, it's a threat militarily to build another city that could be rebellious. I mean, are you starting to grasp the ridiculous nature of what he's asking? And he had it planned. It's like he's going down a list as you read it. You can see everyone in the room. I I guarantee all of his friends in the room were like, oh, no, 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 no. They're trying to calm him down. He's going down the list. I want this and this and this. And they're like, stop, stop. You're going to die. This guy's going to kill you. Are you kidding? It got ridiculous to more ridiculous to extremely ridiculous. And I think what that does for us is it underlines for us how much of the heart of Jesus he had and how hungry he was for the glory of God to be shown to the nations. I think that's what it underscores. I mean, the best case scenario... I mean, think about this. Those same friends, pull them aside, right? They're playing poker that night. And they said, look, Nehemiah, worst case scenario is you die. He's going to kill you. The best case scenario is you leave this cush job... Go to a place that's rebellious and wicked, full of ruins and rubble and a nasty place where you can't get the food you're used to, right? Think. Oh, and all by, by the way, it's gonna, you're going to have to lead these people. that are rebellious and defeated and dejected and they're going to mock you and they're going to attack you. That's the win for you right now. Man, can you tell that this is a go-and-die story? The story of Nehemiah is a go-and-die story. Now, we're on the other side of the cross, but the meaning of this story has not changed any. For us, it is still a go-and-die story. When you were bought, you don't belong to yourself anymore. When you were bought, you don't belong to yourself anymore. This changes when you were bought. It changes the way that you look at everything. It changes your value system. It changes where you draw glory to. It changes everything. You know, I'm sure that Nehemiah, I'm sure his job and his life were important to him. I mean, to be honest, it's a good job. I'm sure it was important to him. I'm sure he worked hard at it. I'm sure his life was important to him. But not as important as God's glory. So he was willing to risk it all. And that's what he did. So, what is out-competing God for glory in your heart? Where is it that we siphon off our glory to? You know, like I said, I went into campus ministry. I spent a long time doing it. Seven or eight years working with college guys. And I can tell you, a key problem with young men is they like to draw glory to themselves rather than reflect what God has done back to him. We like to be vacuums of glory. We like to just sponge it up. Very seldom do we deflect it off. But that's really a human problem. That's not a college dude problem, right? What is it though? I mean, if it's not a cush job like what Nehemiah had, what is it in your life that you catch absorbing more? What is it that you give more weight to? What is it that you are not willing to risk? You know, Nehemiah, he risked it all, but Jesus Christ, when you think about it, Jesus, like we've said week after week, Jesus is the true and better. He's the true and better Nehemiah. He didn't just risk it all, he literally gave it all. He gave every single part of it. Nehemiah being a go-and-die story, it just points to a better go-and-die story and what we have in Jesus Christ. It points to a better one. Jesus, He saw the ruin in you. He saw the, the exile in us as a people. He saw us being broken down. And He left something very cush. He was in the glory of God. He experienced the fellowship of the triune God. That's amazing. And He left and He came and He breathed our diseased air and He took our mockings and our beatings. He took, he took our attacks. And he hung himself on a tree. And he did that to give us a righteousness we don't deserve and to take a righteousness away from us that we duly earned, that we would be one with God. He did this beautiful thing for us. Jesus, more than anyone, he wants God's glory shown to the world. Jesus wanted it so much he died. That's amazing to me. I grew up as a little kid in church always hearing that Jesus took my sin away. Now that's true. That's true, alright? I'm not, I'm not about to tip that cow. That's true. That really happened. What I never really learned at that young of an age is, is not only does he blank the account, he gives us and imputes to us, he, he brings to us a perfect righteousness. In fact, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, the righteousness of God. He gives us a positive account. He doesn't hit the reset button and we have blank. Well, at least we don't have deficit. No, He gives us positive. Now when God sees us, He sees Christ. Effectively, judiciously. That's how He sees us. That's amazing to me. Okay, I gotta go, I gotta move on. So, what does this story show me? What can we get from this? I will tell you that there was a plan waiting for the king. When the king says, what do you need? What are you looking for? What do you want? Nehemiah didn't gawk at him. He didn't go, well, gosh, I didn't expect it to get this far, really, to be honest with you. I don't know, can I get back with you in a week? A day? Please don't kill me. Can I do that? He had, man, I mean, he just had a plan, didn't he? He had it together. He knew exactly what he needed. He was a man of deep, deep prayer, but it produced some deep, deep planning and strategy and action and movement and motion. We usually as a people... We struggle with one or the other, don't we? We're either very it's very easy for us as people cuz we're polar. It's very easy for us to be in prayer and we're not very good planners, right? Or it's very easy for us to plan and we stink at praying. Some of us stink at both, you know? But isn't that how it is that we find it? and we usually look down on the other group. They're either not logical enough or they're not spiritual enough. That's usually what we do. But we're usually one or the other. Always knowing that's our weakness. Always knowing I need to work on that someday. I know I'll get a book on that someday and read it and I'll I'll get better. But that's usually how it is for us. So I want to talk to you just for a minute. Those of you who find it easier to pray than you do to plan. Can I just talk to you for a minute? First of all, thank you. Thank you for praying. Hey, as I was very vulnerable with you last week. This is an area that I I have been weak in. Um, When I asked the question to you last week, where is it that you hurt the church? Not this one, the church in general. Where is it that you hurt the church? I said, for me, it's prayer. I pray for all of you, but I don't pray for all of you as much as I need to, as much as I want to as a pastor. I pray for my family a lot. I want to pray for my family a lot more. There is a lifestyle of prayer that I want that I don't have. Right? So thank you. We need man if you pray and you find that easy please pray for this city pray for this church pray for me pray for our families the leadership pray for finances to come in so we can keep doing this pray I mean just keep praying but be provoked by what Nehemiah is doing here be provoked at the same time because he has activity and strategy and forethought let me tell you if you find this to be a struggle strategy is not unspiritual it's not it's not Strategy is not secular. Jesus had a strategy. He picked 12 men, right? He avoided certain places. He went to certain people. He had a plan. Heck, Jesus is part of a plan. God has a plan. We call that providence. God has a plan. Jesus is a part of it. You know, that's not a reaction, that was preemptive. Before the light switch was flipped on and there's oceans and animals running around and the Garden of Eden, and before even all of that, God knew there would be a cosmic problem and He already provided a remedy in Jesus Christ. He had a plan. When Christ came, it was according to plan. In the fullness of time, that happened. When time was pregnant, it came. Jesus was part of a plan. It's not an unspiritual thing. This is what Warren Weersby says about this passage right here. He says, while Nehemiah was praying, his burden for Jerusalem became greater and his vision of what needed to be done became clearer. Real prayer keeps your head and your heart in balance so your burden doesn't make you impatient to run ahead of the Lord and ruin everything. As we pray, God tells us what to do, when to do it, how to do it, and, we are all, and all of those are important to accomplishing the will of God. Some Christian workers are like the people who fling themselves upon horses and madly ride off in all directions. That's true. Anyone know someone like that? Any, anyone? Someone like that? Some of you are like that? Ride madly off in all directions at once? For some of you, to do a to-do list with action plans and due dates and to rank them, I mean, it just gives you a nosebleed just thinking about it, doesn't it? For some of you? You might easily slip into prayer and spend a lot of time in it, but you find that maybe it's not producing very much action in you. It's not producing very much strategy or planning in you. You're busy waiting on God to do something, yet God's waiting on you to do something. That's the way we see it a lot in this type of a personality. Now listen, the gospel... The gospel, which we are champions of the gospel here, it is not against effort. It's against earning. The gospel is not against effort. The gospel is against earning. We effort, we do things, we act, we plan, but that's because there was already an act done for us. There was already a plan executed for us. Everything we do, whether we strategize, plan, move forward, have motion, have direction, we do it from the posture of something was already won for us, something's already done for us. We get to image what was done, we get to reflect and celebrate what was done, but we're not doing it to get. That's religion. That's totally different. We don't do things to get, we do things because we've gotten right? Effort is not against the gospel. Earning is against the gospel. We can't say that enough. So, practically, I'm going to just say a couple practical things to you. These are super practical. I hate even saying them because you can get a lot of this out of a book, all right? Multiple books. There's many books written on this. Um, Some of it's really good. I would say if this is you and you find yourself praying a lot, but you're struggling and you're choking down and you don't know what to do and there's no action, no movement going, start making lists, just just, trust me, just get pencil on paper, just start writing stuff down. I don't even care what it looks like, just write it down. Come up with lists, come up with things, because once you start moving you'll start to see holes in what you thought could be and God will refine it and then you keep praying and then God will refine it. Come up with lists, rank the lists, come up with action plans. Right? Do these things. Ask people to come into your life and look at them and talk to you about them. Get wise counsel about you. Right? Get good voices, heavy voices that can help you. One good way to do this, if you were this type of a person, think about the win is. What is the win? Man, I really see this part of the city and it needs this so bad. It needs this really bad. If it could just look like this... If it could just look like this, start with this, whatever that is, that big picture. Work yourself backward a hundred times and bite them off into that many bite-sized steps and just start moving. Now, whenever you get to the win, it's not going to look anything like you thought it was. It's going to look totally different, but you'll be very happy with it a lot of times, right? I'll take a hundred of those over one guy that's got the perfect idea in his head and is not ever going to let it out, right? Right? Some of this type of personality, they're the person in woodshop whenever they're building birdhouses, right? And they do really good on step one and two and 40, but they can't do anything in between, so they just get to step two and they keep smashing it and starting over and over and over again, just building nothing but just little tiny beginnings of birdhouses. Just make lists. Pray as you go. Pray often. Now, I say this because some of you, some of you have been sitting on some really cool stuff. Some of you have got some stuff rattling around inside of you that this city really, really needs. And we as a church would be really, really happy to put our shoulder behind and partner with you in. And get your missional community involved. Get these voices. Get some people to lift some of this weight with you, to refine it, to help you, to pray with you. God might actually choose you to be the very one to carry out the burden of your own heart. Now, quickly, for those of you who find it easier to plan, and you struggle with the prayer aspect, but planning comes easy, right? I find myself in this category, all right? Um, You might need to be provoked. First of all, thank you, too. We need more planners. We need more strategy. I'm a planner, but sometimes when I step into things like this, a Sunday morning gathering, or um, a missional community, or a trip, or something like that, like a camp out, the first thing I think of are errors that we've made in planning. I don't even see anything else. I'm seeing, where how could we have done this more efficiently? How could I? And there's usually charts involved. There's usually lists and Roman numerals involved, right? That's how I. That's how I see. So if you're that person, thank you. Thank you for being in my club. But listen, be provoked in what Nehemiah is saying right here as well. What he's doing. He has long-suffering prayer for four months without doing anything. Without doing anything. Be still and know that I am a God. I am, I am God is in Psalm forty-six, ten. Be still and know that I am God. For me, four minutes of that is tough. To be still for four minutes is tough. I'll worry, 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 plan, 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 and then someone will remind me of this verse. Be still, and I'll go, oh, you're right, okay. And I'll pace for a few minutes, and then I'll go right back to worrying. Because I did it, I was still. If you pray, if this is you, and you pray for everything you could think of, everyone you've ever been related to, everyone in the world, you pray, and you just keep praying and praying and praying and praying. And you're like, whew, I'm tired. And then you look at your watch and it's been 21 minutes. This might be you. You need work in this area, right? Welcome to the club once again. There is an internal feeling in this type of a person that you will get more done if you just do rather than pray. We would never say that out loud, by the way. A person like that would never say that out loud. We would never say prayer slowing me down. We would never do it. But don't we live according to that? For all of the you, you planners that don't pray very well? We do. And this just comes from a, a misunderstanding of what prayer is and its purpose. It's not to rest things, to pull things from God's hands. It's to get to know God, to state our total inadequacy to do anything and His total adequacy to do everything. It's our ability to grow close to Him as a Father, and us as His children, to depend on Him, to deepen our dependence on Him. The more you pray, you should become more dependent on God, not less dependent on God. But when we prefer planning over prayer, what we're really saying is, God, I can pretty much get the product produced faster than you and better than you, and I'll get the glory. That's what we're doing. And when you do pray, when I pray, are my prayers aimed at God's glory in the city? Is that what they're going to be aimed at? You know, I heard a pastor say this a couple weeks ago. Man, it jacked me up when I heard it. I thought, oh, I wish you'd never said that. Now it's stuck in my head. He said, if God answered every prayer you've prayed in the last 30 days... If God answered every prayer that you've prayed in the last 30 days, would it change the world, or would it just change your world? Think about it. Ah, right? Would it change the world, or would it change your world? So, the end of this is that the King granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. He gives the glory to God. This is a miracle, by the way. I hope you've seen that. Through the whole weird, miraculous, ridiculous request that this was, it's obvious that God's hand was upon him. And he gives God the credit. It's a miracle. The king said yes. Why did the king say yes to that? What's in it for him? Why did the king say yes to that? Because God told him to. It's providence. God told him to. Proverbs 21, it says this. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and He turns it wherever He wants. He does. He turns it wherever He wants. This is what we call providence. Listen, it was God's perfect plan that Nehemiah, a slave, would be working as a cupbearer to this specific king, at this specific nation, at this specific time, that this specific request would be brought in such a ridiculous manner, that this answer would be given, that he would go and build the walls to this specific city that would worship a very specific God. This is providence, right? That the nation would be built. And who would come from that? Jesus, who would do what? Build another nation, of another exiled people, another dispersed people, another beaten people, broken down, defeated people. He would build another one that in the fullness of time, in the fullness and the pregnancy of time, He would come through a virgin woman of all things. How ridiculous and scandalous is that? Live a perfect life that no one had ever seen, die a very perfect death in trade, in lieu of you and of me as a substitution to make us one with God. Then, coming to life and leaving a tomb totally vacant, to teach his disciples for several days before he ascended to the right hand of God, waiting for us on the throne of grace, creating for us a new city, a new Jerusalem, waiting for you and me. That's just providence. And it all started here. It actually started way back there. This is just one little part of the story. A king said yes, because God wanted him to, because he's preparing a place for you and me, ultimately, right? Right? So we see a pattern in this story. We see, a, we see a pattern. We pray. We pray some more. We plan. We act. We pray some more. We plan some more. We act some more. This is motion. This is a very active book. These are some questions I'm going to leave you with. Some of you are in a place where you feel like you are, like I said earlier, kind of the walking dead. And every day is virtually the same. And you're having a hard time even having a broken heart for somebody. You just don't really bleed for anybody. You can pretty much get through your day and you're fine. My submission is that you would ask God to give you the heart of Jesus like He did Nehemiah. Because he'll do it. You know, that's the beginning of a broken heart is asking for one. That's the beginning of being on mission for God is asking for a broken heart. God, I don't... And listen, I still do that. I'm a pastor of 15 years, and I'm still asking God to break my heart. It's not something you ask for once. I ask for it all the time. Because I could feel calluses growing. Can't you? I can. God, break my heart. I'm so fascinated with myself and my own little universe. Break my heart. I need it to be broken. I'd encourage some of you to do that, to pray that prayer even today. Some of you, you have your heart being torn already for a group, a part of the city, the whole city, a specific, I don't know, a cause, but you don't know what to do. You don't know what to do. I'd encourage you to pray and pray often. Pray hard, pray deep, pray quick, pray slow, pray. And then recruit others. Recruit others to be a voice in your life, to pray with you. And then plan. Write stuff down. Get some movement on it. What could it look like? What, what should it not look like? That's actually easier sometimes. <laughs> when you don't know what it should look like, but you know what it's not going to look like. That's A lot A lot of times that's how, that's how this church was birthed, virtually. Me and Kevin and Chase sitting down in, in a bar over napkins just writing down, well, We don't want it to look like this. We don't want it to look like this either. I'm pretty sure we're going, to, we're going to miss this turn as well. And out of it, it helped us see where we were going by knowing where we were not going to go. Does that make sense? Some of you, you see the hard work, and you're scared of what it might cost you. You're scared of the price tag. But this is a go-and-die story. Being a Christian is a go-and-die lifestyle. That's what it's about. Christ called you to deny yourself. He called you to deny yourself. He called you to die to yourself. called you to abandon yourself, to leave yourself to spend yourself. Your ability to grow as a Christian is gonna be locked up in how well you do this, how frequently you do this, how selflessly you do this. Some of you, you feel very inadequate for great tasks in spiritual work because you feel like an average Joe. I don't know enough. I don't have the seminary knowledge. I've got a a Bible, I'm not crazy about the version of it even, and I've got like three books on my shelf. I don't know where to even get started. Be encouraged that's where Nehemiah was. Be encouraged that this is a book written to average people, with average jobs, with normal rhythms. Be encouraged of that. It's funny how God makes a habit of picking things, people, places that seem weak, that are seemingly not very powerful or brilliant, or experienced, to do some pretty phenomenal things. It actually makes him look bigger and stronger to people. Some of you feel like you are the exiled, and dispersed, and broken down. Some of you feel like you might need a Nehemiah. The truth is, is you need a better Nehemiah. You need Jesus Christ. If you are exiled, there is a nation waiting for you and that is the church. If you feel abandoned, there is a family waiting for you and that's the church. And the head of the church is Jesus Christ. You need to know, you need to know that the only way you will ever find family, the only way that you will ever find home, the only way that you will ever find kindred spirits is by having your heart torn out and literally replaced. Just a spiritual, surgical maneuver of taking a heart of stone out because you're sick of your sin and you're done living your own life drawing glory to yourself all about your own universe and having Him put a heart of flesh beating for Him and beating for the things that He's excited about. Whenever that happens, you become a Christian in a new land with a new family for a new purpose with a new people. It's a beautiful thing. My encouragement to you is that you just radically... Let God rescue you today to abandon your life and let Him pick you up.